Joining me now is my good friend and mentor, Dr. Marshall Foster. Marshall is the founder of the World History Institute. He's the author of the best-selling book, The American Covenant, The Untold Story. Marshall, I'm so excited to have you here with me. Thanks for, for joining me from the Nashville studio. I know you're traveling all over the country right now. You're at this great prayer breakfast in Florida. Is that right? Yeah, we had 2,300 people with Dr. Ben Carson, and we saw a revival break out. It was just, I mean, nobody wanted to leave, right? We're thinking about leaving the tent up year-round just uh, as a follow-up. But uh, yeah, well, no, Marshall, you turned my world upside down when you introduced me to the real National Monument to the Forefathers in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And you took me through that forest of trees in that residential neighborhood. And when I saw this, my jaw dropped and I was so excited. And then I felt this feeling of betrayal by my own history teachers when I was a kid that they never told us about this. You never even hear about this and it's the most important monument in the country. And uh, I just, I can't thank you enough. Marshall, for those who are not familiar with your background, uh, what made you want to devote your life to studying the Christian heritage of America and the revivals of history? Well, what really captured me, I had become a Christian in high school and recommitted my life to Christ in college, became a campus missionary for nine years, and I was on the campus during the Jesus movement and during the riots and revolutions of the late 60s and early 70s. And I found that we were, we were leading thousands and millions to know Jesus Christ, but one of the problems in the Jesus movement is that we didn't have a long-term perspective in the culture, so the culture went to hell in a handbasket. At the same time, we were seeing people become Christians everywhere, and we were making the front cover of Time Magazine, right? The Jesus Revolution. But the truth is that what was wrong as I looked at it from a long-term perspective, was that we as Christians had forgotten our cultural as well as our spiritual responsibilities. We had forgotten the cultural mandate of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We had forgotten the, the discipleship uh, part of it where Jesus says, go forth and disciple the nations. And instead of doing that, we were simply getting into our churches and our little Christian things, but we weren't influencing the institutions that were transforming the future. And so I started at that point with my wife, the World History Institute in 1976, to dedicate our lives to teaching the true heritage of how Christians through the ages have influenced culture by loving God and then moving out as an army of compassion and changing the culture as well. I think well. that's very interesting because I think there are people who are listening to this going, well, wait a minute, why would we try to change the institutions? Aren't we in a post-Christian culture and isn't the world secular and bad and going to burn up anyway? Why polish brass on a sinking ship? What say you? <laughs> who created the institutions? In America, every one of our institutions was built by a Christian people uh, with the Christian worldview, you've got 90, 96% of the people that were in America in 1776 were Protestant Christians. And most of them believed in the Trinity. Most of them believed that Christ should be Lord over all areas and all institutions. And it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century we began to really give that up. And we began to develop, I think, a false thinking that somehow the Lord will rapture us out of this evil world and then things will get better. Uh, right away. That's going to happen anytime. And so if you've got that urgency about right now, you forget the fact that you may be here for another thousand years. And what about your children's children's children? And so building in the long-term perspective uh, takes time. Uh, studying the scriptures, understanding history. And we see that throughout history, at hard times, that's when God steps up 
and cultures as well as hearts are transformed. I hear people saying all the time that they see culture degenerating so quickly. They see soft totalitarianism and worse happening in other countries coming here to America. Do you think there is real hope? I mean, real hope for true revival in the United States? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, I've studied the great revivals in American history in depth. There have been at least four great awakenings, and each one of them began with a pandemic or a war or terrible really? economic despair, uh, times of invasion where we were going to lose our whole country when the French were attacking and the British attacking in the American Revolution, and we had fallen away from the faith. The church didn't even believe in the gospel. But at that point, God stepped in changed the hearts of his, of his people, and they began to move out and, and lovingly transform the country again. So this is the very time in which he works. It's not the good times when we're feeling good about ourselves because we've become self-dependent. It's at the hard times. We've got nowhere else to go, Kirk. We've got to go back to God and his law and his principles, like you're laying out there on the monument, if there's a hope, and there is a real hope, uh, if a minority of us get right with God. You know, you're, you're taking me back to a year ago when I was sitting in my backyard in California and all of us had been locked down. We couldn't go to church. Uh, we couldn't go into businesses, uh, into stores. And I knew as I was looking around that the only hope we have of getting out of this cultural mess that we're in is genuine revival. I'm like, like the kinds that we read about in the Bible, not just uh, a tent meeting on a hot summer afternoon with some fried chicken dinners and uh, you know, a sweaty preacher uh, pointing a finger at people. We're talking about total heart change, changes of our hearts, our homes, our families, our institutions, and the whole nation, because our hope is clearly not gonna fly in on Air Force One. I don't think it's gonna come in through a, a mandate from the CDC. We need to take our orders from the chief executive in the heavenly places, and his mandates bring blessing and bring life. Apart from that, I think we're sunk. Absolutely, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And you know, that's why we wrote the book, The American Covenant, so that people could remember that God works in covenants with individuals as well as with Marshall, nations. that's very interesting and to me. When I think of covenants, I think of the old covenant. People think of the new covenant, but that's like Abraham's stuff and Moses' stuff and the nation of Israel's stuff. What do you mean when you talk about the American covenant? I don't read about that in the Bible. Well, what it is is that, that every nation, as well as every individual, is, is in a covenantal relationship. That just means God lays out the principles. He lays out the power if you're willing to obey those principles. And he says to a nation as well as to an individual, uh, if you will obey me, I will bless you. The pilgrims understood that viewpoint from Scripture. And when they came across on the Mayflower, they had no government at all because they were alone in the wilderness outside of the king's charter. They sat on the Mayflower before they even landed and put their feet on the ground. They got together and every one of them signed the Mayflower Covenant. It was a political document, but it was also a spiritual document. It was saying in the name of God, amen, we covenant to build a civil body politic. So America's very form of government is built on a covenant with God. And it was repeated by the Puritans who came over and every one of the colonial charters, every one of the city charters. And that was all developed over 150 years into what we call the Declaration of Independence, which is what, Kirk? It's a covenant. 
It's, it's in the form of a covenant. It, talks, it gives all the stipulations of the covenant. It says, we have disobeyed here, we've obeyed there. And then at the end, it says, with firm reliance upon divine providence, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That pledging was to God to be an obedient to him and trusting in him. That's what will make America great again is going back to those original covenants with God and doing it his way. And, and I've heard you say that the Constitution and the Declaration of Penance are not only going back to the root of Christianity, but goes back even further to the taproot of the ancient Hebrew Republic under Moses, that that's what our founders were copying. Talk about that. Well, you know, it's good to remember. I mean, here is the book right here. The Geneva Bible, nobody in the history of the world had ever had a Bible in their own hands, in their own language with chapters. That was created in 1599, the first one. Just at the time the pilgrims were ready to go across the ocean and be persecuted, every pilgrim family had this Geneva Bible and read it daily. And they had a pastor who was one of the great intellects of all of Europe who trained with them through the understanding of the Old and New Testament through the Hebrew scholars that were at the University of Leiden when they were in Holland for 11 years, and they understood the biblical principles of that Hebrew Republic, and they brought it over with them on the Mayflower. No money, no power, no influence, uh, you know, a couple of chickens, no gold. All they had was a Bible and their faith. And from that Bible, they created the greatest form of government the world's ever known. And it wasn't anything new. It was a repeat of what God, God had laid down for Moses at, the, at, uh, at Mount Sinai through the commandments. And you see it all the way through the Torah taught specifically. It's a decentralized republic where you elect the judges and elect your, your representatives and every family is independent making decisions. You didn't have a king. You didn't have a power monger at the top. What are we doing today? We're losing that self-governing republic model, aren't we? And we're moving toward top centralization so that one man, like in Canada, is happening right now, can simply declare martial law and tell everybody that their bank accounts belong to me. You know, that is not the Republican biblical way. That's the way that was taught by the pilgrims. And that is so exciting to know that, that we live in a country that is modeling its form of government, um, not just the division of powers uh, as, as some cool idea that the founders had that George Washington came, with, came up with or Thomas Jefferson, but they were modeling what God had given to the nation of Israel with electing their leaders, men of character and appointing judges. And th th this is exciting to me. We need to get back to these kinds of things. And I know that, that it was revival in their hearts and in their homes that gave them the ability to deal with their sin and to have faith and have courage to be able to set up this new republic. Marshall, we need revival today. What do you see in our culture right now that might be indicating that we're on the verge of a new revival? Well, I think you have to start out with the fact that God orchestrates the, the affairs of men. And, and in our state right now, where we've lived in luxury, we've been the richest, freest nation the world's ever known for 300 years, that we, as we look at it now, we needed a repentance. We do need a repentance. And so, but what happens in times of luxury is we forget. We forget the mighty deeds of God. And so Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus. He said, remember from whence thou hast fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first. This has happened at least four times in American history. The entire history of America can be written based on these revivals. When the revival comes, God brings it, we don't bring it, but he brings it down 
in the midst usually of, of, of despair among the people where they've got nowhere else to look. They stop looking to their materialism. They stop looking to their government and they say, oh God, what have we done? And he says, listen, come back to me and I will show you the way. It's, it's, it's not that difficult to figure out. It's right there on the monument. It is the plan of God through the ages to bring liberty to the nations. Do it God's way, love him. Come to love him again, come to know his word. And then from that, you're going to be able to train your children when, the, when you rise up and when you live, walk through the day and when you lie down. And then you're gonna live it out in your home as you live by God's principles and you continue to confess your sins. And then you reach out to the city gates and you transform the city by your love. That strategy of Deuteronomy chapter six is the same strategy of Jesus, the same strategy of all the great heroes of faith that have brought liberty to the nations from then to now. Marshall, that sounds so biblical. It's, it's, it sounds so patriotic. It, it, it sounds like a, a note that will, will continue to ring inside of my heart and my mind as true. Why aren't I hearing that kind of a message coming from the pulpits in America? I don't think they know it. Uh, Kirk, I've been giving seminars for 35 years, 40 years, and, and I find that wherever I go, America's Christian history uh, is not known. Because remember, we, we live in a woke civilization today, which, you know, from the time at least of the 40s and 50s in America, the historical academy has been taken over by men of socialist bent, and they turned their back on our Christian history, and they have demeaned it, and the vast majority of seminaries have taught that too. So most People even in the pulpit do not know that great Christian heritage or the concepts, the basic biblical concepts of how to restore and rebuild a nation. They're there for all of us. And that recovery is coming now a lot because of, of your campfires that you're holding every night. Millions of people now are being recovered in these principles and the result I think is going to be the foundation for another great awakening. Well, I, I just had the honor of sharing some of those principles that are in your book, The American Covenant, The Untold Story where uh, you point out that our founding fathers and mothers understood that God is the sovereign, Jesus is the ruler of this world, and Satan is a defeated foe. We're not sitting around crying in our Chick-fil-A soup as we see the culture deteriorate around us, waiting to, to get Star Trek out of here. What we need to be doing is what you're saying now, and that is to uh, take the principles of God, the mandates of heaven, and work them through every aspect of our culture so that we have a future for our children and we have a hope for our children because wherever we apply God's principles, they, they cause life to come out of, 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 of dead things. And so uh, our, our culture does not have to deteriorate into a corpse. We can have revival if we humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways and we apply God's word to all of life just like our founders did uh, and our forefathers did in the wilderness and built the greatest country on the earth. Marshall, let me ask Absolutely. you this, is, is revival something that God does or is that something that we do? I mean, we have, to, we have a part in it, right? We have to repent, we have to obey, but, but God's gotta tear open the heavens and come, come down. Which comes first? Well, that's, that's the beauty of history, I think, is it, it's history and the scripture, of course. The scripture says it does begin with God, it has to, because we need to be revived and only God can revive us. So if you put up a tent and say, I'm bringing a revival, well, forget it. You're not gonna bring it. But if you, by faith, are stepping out and believing God, and God honors that because we repent, because we pray, it's, we're, it's all part of the process. God's called us to do that. 
But as we do, it is God that brings it down, and he's done it again and again and again. And I believe he's doing it now. I see it in the prayer breakfast from the other day. I see it around the nation as people are praying and repenting and meeting. Uh, evangelism is becoming important again. I, I was standing in the airport yesterday going through the big long line to get through. A doctor's in front of me, and I had the American Covenant, and I had it like this, and he said, what's that? I said, oh, this, and we began to talk, and we developed this heart relationship over the next 10 minutes in the line. And he said, I told him about the Hebrew Republic. I told him about what he said. And he was a friend of Dr. Carson's from 30 years ago in medical school. And his, his son is in trouble. And he, but he said, boy, this is what we need. And I gave him the book. I, I think people are ready and hungry for revival, Kirk. But God, God brings it at his time. And it's just such a time as this. When we are at that critical moment, we're still free. We have a republic. We still have the skeleton of a Christian republic. We need to blow the breath of the spirit back into it. We don't have to rebuild something from scratch in a tyranny like they do in China. We have got that foundation. That doesn't make us any better. It means that we're more responsible now. From that can build republics and freedom in China and Asia and places all over the world. If, if, the, if America comes alive for God, the whole world can be. That reminds me of of the Valley of Dry Bones, that story in Ezekiel of, of where God took him in the vision and showed him all of those dry bones laying in the valley. And he said, speak to these bones and tell them that, 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 that I am God and to live. And God breathes breath onto them and the bones start to rattle and they start to shake and they come together and they stand up into this great army. And that is the house of Israel. And what I'm feeling from what you're saying is that we've got a lot of dry bones uh, all laid all across this country. We've got churches, hundreds of thousands of them all across the nation. And what we need God to do is to, is to breathe life into our churches. And we need to rise up as the loving army of compassion, the family of faith. And we can take back not only the original American covenant that our forefathers gave us, but we can take back the vision that God is on the throne, that he is Lord of all the institutions, and that the, the, the knowledge of the glory of God can cover the land just like the waters fill the seas. Do you agree with that? Oh, yes. William Bradford, the governor for 30 years of the pilgrims, uh, after they landed and lived here for 20 years, they said, from this one small light, we've lit our entire nation. And then he said, he said, we've come here to propagate the gospel of Christ to the remotest parts of the world. Yea, that we can be but stepping stones for the promotion of so great a work. Think what the odds were against them ever succeeding. Nothing, losers, nothing, nothing going on. There was nothing but a wilderness in America and they created the greatest nation the world's ever known. Things are better now, not worse than they were in the time in the New Testament or were in the dark ages, middle, they're better. They're better. And so we need to not believe this negativity that comes across in the media that there's no hope. It's all, it's destined. We're all going to become progressive and we're all going one direction. That's just not true. Uh, you know, people rise and fall, but God never rises and falls. He's always risen and he's always in control. And he has a, it's his world, Kirk. And if we will do it God's way peacefully, we can reach out. And as you say, that army of compassion can permeate the very structures of our society and the hearts of men and change us. And he's doing it, Kirk. He's beginning to do it in a mighty way. When we come back, Marshall, I wanna talk more about revival and where we see it happening around the world today. 
Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with uh, my favorite historian, Dr. Marshall Foster, the author of The American Covenant, The Untold Story. Marshall, can you give us an example of a time in history where things were as bad for a nation as they are for us in America right now, and yet God did something and turned the whole nation around? I think there's a great example, and our English ancestors, because America basically was built out of England, Scotland, and those people were the first ones to come. If you look back on the, uh, the uh, 19th century, late 18th century, the time when King George was in control and he was attacking America, uh, at that time, England, which had started with the great Puritan Reformation and the great Reformation of the Bible and the Geneva Bible, and they had become like the Christian nation of the world of the, of the 17th century, they had fallen away over the next century to such an extent that all the politicians were drunk on Madeira all day long in the parliament, and the poor people were working in slave conditions uh, seven days a week, including the, the women and children, and they were drunk on gin, which cost 10 cents a day to get drunk. And they were drunk everywhere. They were, uh, there was slavery. The, the slave trade now was controlled by the English, and they, they had brought slavery on a massive scale to the world. They were wealthy beyond belief and that all they cared about was their wealth. And so England was in a mess. I mean, it was in a mess, about ready to fall apart. And at that very moment, uh, there's a man who is converted and his name is William Wilberforce. And he was kind of a playboy, but he had not much strength of, of body, but he, he, he got converted to Christ. And at the time when he was starting out in the parliament, he had a lot of money but he, God began to change his heart and he gathered a group of leaders and others, about 12 of them, in a little place called Clapham outside London and they began to pray that God would give them the power not only to bring revival to England, but to actually change all their institutions. And as a result of the Clapham group that began to pray there, 42 years later, he worked in the parliament to bring an end to the slave trade worldwide. That took him 42 years from a place where he alone stood against it to the entire parliament voted against slavery. And during that time, they created 225 nonprofit organizations that then went out and, and ended the problem of the, of the prostitution in the streets, ended the problem of the, of the drunkenness, uh, brought evangelism to England and Scotland and converted half of England and Scotland to Christ. All of those things and much, much more, literally transforming institutions along the way took place because of 11 guys, 13 guys, meeting at a dining room table in Clapham outside of London in a time of terrible despair where nobody loved God. Is that not like our time? Do we not need those 12 and 13 to gather together in every little community and say, oh God, oh God, look what's happening to our children in the streets. Look what's happening in the inner cities of America today. Little babies being shot as the guns are going by in the day, just in their, in their cribs. It's, I mean, we are a nation falling apart. And in that falling apart, what is God saying to the hearts of those who love him? Gather together, pray and say, God, what can we do? And as we gather and, and follow his strategy, he'll open up doors we didn't even dream. And maybe it'll take us 40 years to make things right. That's okay. Because you know, the world is looking, Kirk. They're looking to us. They're looking to the church and they're saying, where are you church? If we're not there, they're simply going to put us away. They're just gonna say, they're not the salt anymore. I know that you've uh, told the story of St. Patrick and what he did in the nation of Ireland. Talk about that. 
Yeah, you can start right at the beginning. When you follow the, the Great Commission, you go and disciple nations. You don't just bring the gospel. You bring the gospel in all, all of the scripture. And that's what he did. He was a slave. He was, he was picked up in, in tra trafficking by, well, along with 2,000 other English people, brought over. And for six years, he was a slave of a warlord in Ireland. At the age of 21, God says, go, I'm going to give you freedom. And he escaped out of Ireland, went back for 20 years and prayed. And God spoke to him, oh, from a little boy who gave him a dream and said, oh, come save us, save us, save us, oh boy, bring us back. And so he dedicated his life and he got enough money to get three ships and 12 men to go with him. And he went back into this terrible place called Ireland where there was nothing but warlords and slavery and death. And within a period of 35 years, it set up 300 churches, set up cities. He, 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 he taught the people to read and they became the missionaries of the world. Within one generation, Kirk, they were getting on sail ships with Bibles that they had translated by hand that took 30 years to do off the islands of Ireland. And then these men would get on their little ships and go to places like Scotland, landed right there on the Hebrides Islands and converted all of Scotland in 20 years. And the Scots went on to convert the terrible Anglo-Saxons who had taken control of England then in the next century. So this began to grow and grow all because of one man, Patrick, with a love for the Irish that had enslaved him. And he went back to reach him with the gospel. And he brought them not only the gospel, but the transforming power of civil government. You know, he brought the laws of God, Mose Libra, and that changed the laws of the Irish to be more like English common law. That was brought over to the Scots and then brought to the English. And then Alfred the Great, seven centuries later, created what's called English common law based upon the word of God, which became the foundation for Magna Carta in the 13th century, written by a pastor. And Magna Carta was the great document of freedom brought over to America in the minds of the pilgrims and the Puritans and the foundation of America's constitution. So all that started with one man, Patrick, believing that he could save an entire people. And, and all these stories that you're telling keep following the same strategy. It's the strategy found in this monument, right? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's, that's the exciting thing, Kirk. Everybody's looking for, you know, Elon Musk or, or, or you, know, you know, Facebook or somebody to, with all the money to come up with a solution. And they have think tanks and, oh, if we could go to Mars, if we could do this and that. In reality, we need to simply go back to what God said. We, we need to say, well, what does God say? Well, God says that there's a basic strategy for building nations and bringing liberty to the people. It's preaching the gospel. It's loving your neighbor. It's living before God and doing it the right way. Right there at the beginning, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That was the strategy. Do it God's way with the family, with the wife. And then after the flood, Noah gives the same strategy. Remember, first words out of the mouth of God to Noah were, be fruitful multiply and fill the earth. And he said how to do it. He said, I want you to go out under your own vine and fig tree, spread out, don't get together in one plane, don't get together in one group and try to build yourself an image, but everybody be self-governing under me and love me and take the entire earth for me and replenish it and make it a better place. So even Noah was given the same strategy. The problem is the people went off into the plain and built the Tower of Babel and messed, messed a lot of things up. But then God came back through Moses and a persecuted people were given the same strategy. Do it God's way. Live it out in your tribes and in your family. Be self-governing and then you won't need to have a king. And they became the most loved and powerful nation of the world by the time of David and Solomon, right? 
And we just need to come back to him and say, God, help us do what our forefathers have done. Be faithful to the promises of God and then God will bless us. I believe God is setting us up so that before he opens the windows of heaven and comes like a mighty rushing wind in the form of revival, that, that we will realize what a desperate place we're in and we'll relearn this strategy. We will relearn the principles of God, the mandates from heaven, so that we'll know what to do with all of this, all of this blessing, with all of this power, with all of this authority that he's given to the church. We need to know what to do with it so that we can rebuild this republic on the principles that he's given us. Exactly. It's what Jesus said in Revelation 2 to the most successful church in the New Testament, to the church at Ephesus. They had all the money, power. They had the Apostle Paul be the pastor of their church for three years. They were the hot place to be. And yet the Ephesus church had fallen away. And Jesus said, you have lost your first love. And what did he say? He said, this is what you need to do. Remember from whence thou hast fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. That's all we need to do, Kirk. But Marshall, Just how remember. do we convince a major the majority of people in, a, in America to turn back to God? It seems like the herd is heading in the wrong direction. You know, my, my mentor historically was a lady named Verna Hall, a single historian who spent her years studying the Constitution. And back in 1976, I was this excited young man involved in this. And I thought, wow, I'm going to change the world. And, and she looked, Marshall, Marshall. When you, when you hear your name three times, you know you've got a mentor. And, and, and she put her arm around me and this so smart. She said, Marshall, don't chase the buffalo herd. And she, what she was saying is, just it looks like everybody's going one direction. Don't try to run out in front of them and say, stop, stop, you know. She said, she said God will turn the people. Because of hard times, they'll realize it doesn't work. And they'll come back, and they'll be coming right at you. But she said, will you have the principles? Will you have the, the family? Will you have the love to be able to love them, not judge them, but love them and say, yes, I've been there too. We've all been there. And then give them those, those, those principles. Because God is going to turn our people. I believe we don't have to turn them. We have to just go back and say, God, make me a light. Make me a light and my friends a light and begin to disciple one by one by one. How fast can it go? A campfire in every county. There's nothing could stop this grassroots movement. That's right. And, and Marshall, you've inspired me to start one of these campfires in my own backyard. And that story of William Wilberforce and the Clapham groups, it's, it's the local strategy and it starts in the heart and it works its way out through my family and your family into our communities and all the way up to the, to the nation. Marshall, if revival is something that has to start in my heart, how does revival go from my heart beating quicker for Jesus to the entire nation being transformed and heavenized? Internal to external, yes. How does it happen? That's where history is so effective. I mean, there's probably 25 stories in the book, The American Covenant, that, sh that give the answer to that question. And each one of the stories is the story of somebody who usually is against all odds and usually has no money power, and he's facing a culture that's exploding, and his family's saying, what are we going to do? That's exactly where the American people are today, Kirk. You can travel in an airport. You look at their eyes. You talk to them, right? And they're saying, wow, what are we going to do? Things don't look good. Our country's going down. In the midst of that, the answers are there. And if we will trust him and then look at, look at history, look at Scripture and say, wait, if I will do my part, be faithful in the little things, 
and do what God's called me to do and then reach out to my neighbors and then reach out to others. It explodes. Revivals and awakenings just take off. George Whitfield started with nothing down in a little orphanage down in, 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 in Georgia. And within, uh, you know, a few weeks, they said, can you preach? He began to preach up the coast within the next 20 or 30 years as a result of seven little trips. Half of the South was converted to Christ and one third of the North came to know Christ. The people's hearts were warmed when this one man and then the other faithful pastors, the minority of the pastors who got right with God, they began to preach the gospel and people said, yes, I want to do it God's way. That resulted in them being willing to have people like Patrick Henry, who were saved in the awakening, uh, Samuel Adams, George Washington. These great men rose up out of that awakening and became the leaders of the American Revolution. So you see, you've got to have a long-term perspective of 30 years, not five years or one year, and say, who's going to win in the long run? God is. What are we going to do? Follow God or Satan? We're going to follow God. And if we do it God's way, God will give us a future of blessing. That's right, because covenant keepers win and covenant breakers lose every time. You just got to stick around long enough to see the end of the story. Marshall, how can people learn more about the World History Institute? Well, they can go to worldhistoryinstitute.com, of course, or go to marshallfoster.org, um, and uh, they can learn more about us, and our books and our materials are available there. We just love what you're doing, Kirk. I love working with you, and uh, it's, just, it's a privilege to be a part of, of a standing for Christ in a time like this. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.